0: Happy birthday. You know, it's all your birthday today, right? Do you know what today is? Today's Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes and descends? Enters your heart on one day in history couple thousand years ago the holy spirit came in a way that the holy spirit had never come before and jesus said it's going to be awesome when i leave and when i ascend into heaven because when i do father's going to send someone to you this comforter this guide and when the holy spirit comes where does the holy spirit go Into us as individuals and it forms something for the first time what's that the church the church for the first time ever there's a church and it happens when there's a bunch of people who are sitting in an upper room and they're praying and they're seeking god's face and he builds his church for the first time and he says remember when he says upon this confession of of him as the christ i will build my church and the first building block the first moment where god begins to build his church is at pentecost and that's the beginning of the church. It's the birth of the church, and so today is our birthday. That's what it is. We celebrate our birthday on the day of Pentecost. It also happens to be my son Colton's birthday, um, and so I said, "Man, you have the same birthday as the church this year." And he's like, "What?" And uh, I, I said, "But the funny thing is, is you know, our birthday as a church it doesn't happen on the 24th every year like yours does. It changes a little bit based on which Sunday it is, but." Uh, But today you have the same birthday as the church and uh, today uh, Is a really special day that it's our birthday because we're starting this dad series, you know And uh, and so here we are starting the this series about our relationship with our father And uh, it's starting on the the day that we as a church are born Which is pretty special uh, if you ask me so, um I want to look at a couple passages just to kick us off. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a few passages. I'm going to make a few uh, statements about those passages, give a little perspective on them, and then we're going to pray and uh, go a little bit deeper in looking at this relationship. Okay, so I'm going to ask us to turn to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to look at the first three verses to that. I will have you stand today, please, in honor of God's Word. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You can have a seat. That was almost like just doing like a a deep knee bend or a squat there. That was real quick. Um, A few uh, thoughts just on this text here is that um, he says that we're called children of God. It doesn't just say that we are children of God. It says that we're called children of God. That's an important difference. It doesn't mean that we're not children of God just because we're called that, but it means that more than just being children of God, we're also called children of God. Why is it important that we're called? Because the calling is the naming. That's the identifying. It's not just, yeah, there. there's many things about us that may be true, but we don't realize how true they are till someone says it. You know how powerful it is when there might be a, a talent or a, a gift in a little child and they might be very good at something, but they might not know just how good they are until someone comes along and says, hey, you're really, really good at that. Did you know that? And that It does something. In a child, when that's named, when it's called out in them, they say, oh, really? Cool. And they get excited about that, and then they might pursue that more. And this is why we're told here, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. In other words, we should be seen as, identified, and known as the children of God which is an awesome thing, but then it goes on to say why that's a little bit peculiar, and it says, and so we are. We are the children of God, which is why this is awesome, but the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In other words, we won't get the affirmation of being the children of God by looking around at the world. When we look around at the world and look for our identification and look to be named for who we are, the world will never be able to identify, oh, You're a child of God. And he's saying the reason is is because the world doesn't know God. And if you don't know God, then how could you name someone as, Oh, you're like your dad. Well, they don't know our dad. So since they don't know our dad, then they can't name us as children of him. They wouldn't see the family resemblance. Then it goes on and it says, Beloved, we are God's children now. So we already know that currently we actually are God's children. And then it says this, which is pretty interesting. It says, And what we will be has not yet appeared. So actually, we're something even more than just his children, but we don't know what that is yet. It hasn't appeared. But what we do know is that we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And what does that mean? Well, it means two things. First of all, since we are his children, we already know that we're like him. And when he appears, we'll be like, oh, that's the part of me that... That's where I, it's like a, a child who's never seen their, their parent before and they're an adult and then they, they go and see a picture of their parent and they're like, that's where I got those ears from, you know? Oh, so when Jesus appears, I'll be like, ah, that's where that comes from, you know? And that's the one part of what's going to happen when Jesus is revealed is we're going to know things about ourselves because we see him. And what's more is, is that we will actually become more like him when we see him. Because in the same way that when we call something out in a child, and then it sets that off and they say, oh, and then they more fully become that thing. We're told that when we stare into Christ, when we stare into the face of our father and into the face of of Christ, that we become more like him. That's why as we behold his glory, we are being transformed with ever-increasing likeness into his glory. When we look at him, we become like him. The more we see him, the more all of our false reality kind of fades away, and we start to live in the true reality of who he is. So the more we know him, the more we see him, the more we actually become like him. All right, and then uh, it says uh, this last thing that I, I really want to identify here. Um, It says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And, um, you know, there's this thing that happens where um, some people are very interested in kind of finding their family tree, finding history about their family. And some of that's just intrigue because people like history. But some of that also is that we learn a lot from digging back into the past and learning where we came from and this is what this passage is actually saying to us is is that it's saying if we've been born of God and if we're called children of God then the more that we can understand who he is the more that we will begin to really understand the context of our life and the context of who we are so there's a call in here to dig into like where do you come from who are you you know what are we about and as we stare at him and the more fully he's revealed the more it brings information to who I am. All right, I want you to turn with me then uh, to the next chapter in uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. I won't have you stand again. We could be doing squats here if we kept doing that. Uh, So starting in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So... uh, Of course, if we stop there for a second, what this verse is actually saying is the family trait is love, right? So you can tell when you're looking at this person whether or not they look like their dad because this is the family trait. This is the the dominant genetic characteristic of the family of God is that of love. So those who are living in love are like, ah, I know what family they're a part of, you know, and that's what it's in essence saying. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So since God is the very definition of love, if you don't know love, then you can't actually know God because the best single word descriptor, the best character descriptor of God is love. So therefore, if we're not aware of love, if we're not in tune with love, if we're not, uh, if, if our hearts and our minds can't grapple, uh, grasp love, Then we also can't, to that degree, we can't grasp God as well. Verse 9 In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Remember, um, to the extent that we are seeing and understanding God's love, to that extent we can become his love. And he's saying so because of that. One of the reasons then that he manifests his love is so that we can see it. He reveals his love and the way that he most acutely reveals his love to us is by sending his son who sacrifices for us. As we stare into the gospel and as we stare into the good news, as we stare into the incarnation and then also the crucifixion, And then also the resurrection of Christ. The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and everything in between. What we're doing is we're seeing the love of God personified here in humanity. And as we stare at that, we begin to understand him. And that begins to show us our family heritage. It begins to show us who our father is. It begins to show us who we are called to be. Verse 10, in this is love. Okay, here it is. In this, right here, it's saying is love. Not that we have loved God. In other words, if we want to understand what love is, we shouldn't look at how humans love God. That's not where we figure out what love is. That's not a good picture to help us define love and to understand love. That's, that's not in that. It's in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and the way he you know most precisely does this and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins in other words the deepest most difficult part of love is when we are horribly treated by someone and yet we do everything within our power to restore the relationship into good graces. And so this is love, not in the way we have loved him. That's not a good picture. The way that we see love is the way he loves us by sending his son to lay down his life, to wash us, to cleanse us and to restore us. This is the very picture of love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. If that's the way father handled it, then that's the way this family is going to operate, right? Then we also, as brothers and sisters now, should be that way. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. There's a, that's, a, that's a great study to talk about the no one has ever seen God thing. There's like, you might be like, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus God? And didn't we see him? And what about Moses? And what, how does, you know, it says they talked to God as though they were friends and face-to-face and what's all that stuff. That's a great study. I would urge you to study that at some point. We're not going to get into that now. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, if we love one another, then God abides in us. It means he's hanging out among us, and his love is perfected in us. So, in other words, it says you don't see love by looking at how humans love one another. You, look at, you, you define love by seeing how God loved us. However, the, to the extent that we abide in God's love and to the extent that we're loving one another his love it's not our love it's his love starts to work among us and if we want to see him that's the way that the way that when jesus came we saw the love of god here in humanity that can start to happen again in the church to the extent that we begin to live in that love all right one more text all right and that's just to keep going down to verse 16 there and if you look at verse 16 it says so we have come to know and believe The love that God has for us. This is important. Knowing and believing. There's a difference between just knowing it and believing it, right? And so if I know that God loves me, like I know it in my head, well, that can give me an intellectual framework, a paradigm for what love should look like. But it doesn't mean that I'm actually being transformed into that love or I'm experiencing the effects of that love. I actually have to believe that love in a way that changes the way I act that changes the way I make decisions. If I make a decision because I am so loved by God, and over here, the vacuum of God's love or the vacuum of love in my life would make me choose to live this way, but then over here, I have to believe that I'm fully loved, and that would make me choose to, to do something different. That means I'm believing in the love. So it says, it says this, We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love. Whoever abides in that love, that has to do with that believing. Whoever whoever tucks up into that love, whoever rests in that love, whoever holds on to that love, whoever abides in love, abides in God. And God abides in him. And by this, that is that abiding, is love perfected in us. So to the extent that we are abiding in his love, then it's beginning to be perfected in us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. You want confidence on the day of judgment? You want to be able to stand with confidence when you stand in front of God? You want to be able to look at God face to face and know that no matter what has gone on in my life, I have confidence that I am loved by God and he will not cast me away from his presence. If you want that kind of confidence, it tells me right here the way that I can have that confidence. It says, God is love. Whoever abides in his love abides in God and God abides in him. And by this abiding is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Why? Because As He is, so also are we in this world. The way I have confidence is because I know that He's my Father and He loves me. And the way I know that is because I see the character traits of my Father working themselves out among us. And that is because as I abide in Him and as I hold on to Him, something starts happening where He is birthing in me His very likeness. And that very likeness is something that brings assurance of the family identity and the family trait. And see how he says how this gives me confidence. It says this. Verse 17 again, by this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And then verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And so here it is, is that if my relationship with God is inhabited largely by fear, then that means that my belief system says that I'm still separated from God. And that that propitiation of sins that he just talked about is speaking into me things of shame and things of separation. And I'm thinking, God doesn't like me. You know, oh, I'm such a mess. And I'm identifying myself not as a child of God, but I'm identifying myself as an orphan, one who's kind of separated from God. And I'm trying to self-improve or I'm trying to self-loathe or whatever that is. But what he's saying is to the extent that I learned to abide in God's love, to receive the full forgiveness of God, to the extent that I believe in that love, it begins to change me because I have less and less fear in trying to micromanage my life. And instead, I have more and more freedom to just believe and rest in the fact that he loves me. And that will change the way my life looks. And when I see the way my life looks different, I will have confidence that I am loved. It's not confidence that, oh, now God will love me because I'm loving. No, no, no. That's a ridiculous thought. It's not our love. It's his love. What it means is, is I know that I'm okay because I see his love for me. And that love is what gives me confidence. His love for me is what's giving me confidence. And it's what's changing me and making me more like him. And the more I see him working that out in my life, I'm like, Man, God, how are you doing this in me? This is amazing. If you've done all this in me, why would you wouldn't do that just to lead me to destruction? The more we see the hand of God in us, transforming us, the more confidence we have that God is for us, not against us. And the less we're afraid of his punishment, and the more we rejoice in his redemption. And it begins to change us. Okay, those are the texts for today. Please join me in prayer. Father God, with a few minutes that we have here, God, we just ask that all those principles that you brought out to us in 1 John 3 and 4, that you'd help us to think of those in terms of how they practically affect our lives. And and I ask that uh, as we think through who you are, that God, you would help us to understand who we are and that there would be this great, beautiful thing that develops more and more in our lives of understanding our Father, understanding ourselves, understanding the family and beginning to believe in something very different than what we're told by every other voice in our life. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have uh, a picture, a couple pictures here. I want you to see um, this picture that uh, is in front of us. See these two guys? The one on the left is his birthday. This is at Phil's game that we went to. It was awesome. And uh, the one on the left, it's his birthday today. Um, it was raining that night. Um, so they're wearing their uh, jackets and everything. But the one on the left, he just turned nine years old today, you know. And, uh, and his brother's 10 years old right next to him. They're 16 months apart. There's this funny thing that we do with kids. And uh, the funny thing that we do with kids oftentimes is uh, there's this game that, like, everybody plays, which is, like, who do they look like, you know? You know how that works with kids? We always kind of talk about who they look like and which one looks like who or which combination or or whatever. And so, and that can change. I mean, you know, when a kid's a baby versus when they're two years old versus when they're 10, it can all change. Their characteristics can change. And so when you look at, at these two boys here, and the picture's all stretched a little bit. We're having a little bit of a problem with our screen. So it's, it's all stretched out. Um, they're actually a little bit in real life, than they are in this picture, um, they probably look more like their dad right now. When it's stretched out a little bit, they got a little broader shoulders and all that. But they, um, uh, so people tell us who they think each of these boys look like. But they also look a little bit like each other too, don't they? But they have differences about them, and uh, so many times people have said, "Oh, this one looks like you," or "This one looks like." And what's funny is, is that I, when I look at Evan, I see. Um, both my father-in-law, the one who's really deep in cancer right now, and people tell us more than anyone else that he looks like my father-in-law. But then people also tell me that he looks like my dad, and they'll tell me that he looks like me. Um, And so they'll say he looks like his granddad, and it doesn't matter which one, on both sides. they say. And they'll say the other thing about Colton is they'll, they'll say that Colton looks like both his grandmas, and they'll say that he looks like Jen's brother um and so it, it, there's like these this mix but then when you look at just their parents you can look at the next picture okay you can't really see our faces cuz there's shadows over our faces there's too much rain so there's this uh that you could make any combo of the two of us and come up with these kids you know um that's good thanks for the pictures um and when we look at the physical traits of a child we realize that they don't get to really choose Those physical traits. You don't get to choose. I mean, you were born into this family. This is the DNA you have. But you know what's really interesting is with all the scientific advances and with all the medical advances right now, there are so many people who are trying to alter what DNA has created in their life. And so whether it's through surgery or whether it's through medications, whether it's through certain uh, DNA uh, selection and different things that people are able to do, there's real questions about, like, how much can I manipulate who I am because I don't like the identity that I am, I don't like the way I see myself when I look in the mirror. And it's caused a whole lot of questions right now about to what degree is it okay for me to manipulate what my DNA has already spoken to me. You know, for for millennium, since the beginning of mankind, we haven't been able to choose who our dad is. We haven't had that option. We don't get to choose who our parents are. We don't get to choose the resulting DNA in our lives. And because of that, there's all sorts of results, positive or negative. There might be a family name that I inherit that comes with a lot of shame. Or there might be one that comes with a great deal of pride. It may be that... that that uh, there, there's a big inheritance that comes by being born into this family or a whole load of debt, you know? And I don't get any choice over that. I I'm not the one who got to choose that. In the Scriptures, there's this this spiritual principle around that which is called generational blessing and generational curses. Which the things that have happened to my parents are passed down unto me for better or for worse. And, and we've... For, for years and years and years and years and years, humanity's understood, maybe not appreciated necessarily, but it's understood that a huge part of who I am and what I struggle with and what I'm blessed with and how my life works was not my decision. It was handed to me by those who have gone before me. The country that we live in, we say, was built on our forefathers, right? The faith that we step into, is built by our forefathers in Hebrews 11. You know, the heroes of the faith. And we have this heritage, but the, the ones who have the most direct influence on our life, the most profound effect, are our parents. And the DNA that my dad passed on to me has huge effects in my life. Massive effects in who I am. You know, my father named me, he gave me the name Timothy, and he did that intentionally, He did it purposefully. And my dad left indelible marks on my life for better or for worse. I didn't say scars and all the marks weren't just on my tail side, you know, but he left, he left marks on me and uh, for better or for worse, some marks, you know, we might really appreciate some marks we might not. You know you you might look at the the your father and say, "Man, I have so much fear because my dad lived in fear and I carry the anxiety that he had or it might be that I struggle with addiction that my father struggled with and and I have I carry that level of of things because of what he struggled with for me, I have an unfortunate hairline, you know it's just my dad gave that to me. Woe is me. We have things that are passed on to us. You know, what? ideally what we hope for is that a father is not only the one who names us, but he's also the one who helps really identify us, to call us out. That a father's not just one who, who in the beginning he and mom say, this will be your name, but throughout our formative years that there is a constant naming that there's an identifying of who you are that's solidifying a sense of identity. And some of us went missing from that. We didn't have parents who really did that for us. Some of us did, you know. And that can have huge ramifications. Ideally, a father's one who not only names us, but also has deep identity embedding in our lives. I could talk about this in terms of a mother and a father, and, and God really does kind of play both those roles. But clearly across scriptures, the, 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 the picture that he gives himself is that of a father. So as you hear me talk more in terms of a father and more in terms of a dad, our series is going there because that's how the scriptures really talk about it. Ideally, a father is one who not only is a physical progenitor in our life and therefore passing on the physical characteristics but also one who develops and embeds in us values. So, you know, my ears, they came from my dad, I'm pretty sure, you know. And my, there's, there's different parts of who I am that physically, my parents didn't get to choose what parts physically get passed on. And there's other things that they don't actually choose what parts get passed on. But then there's other parts that they actually do intentionally pass on to us, you know. And there's values that are building on us. I don't know how many times I remember facing situations that I wasn't happy with and I wanted things to change or whatever, and hearing my dad say a phrase that I always remember. Tim, it builds character. You know? And I remember that many times, you know, and he's right. Right? You know, when you when we walk through certain moments, we learn how to stay in there. We would say, You started it. If you don't want to if you don't want to play that next season, you don't have to, but you're gonna finish what you started. And what you committed to. You know, Those are the embedding of values that change a child because of having a father invest in certain ways. For some of us, all we had was a dad who was the physical progenitor who we never even met him. For some here at Park Ford never even saw their dad. They don't even know which physical character traits resemble their dad. Let alone having a father who helped embed values into them. For others, they kind of wish it had been that way because it seems like what dad invested into them did more harm than good. Because sometimes what a physical dad can do in our life can cause more damage than good things. You know? And some have experienced that as well. And it's sad. It's a sad thing when we look at what can happen from fathering in our world and the damage that can take place in a person's life. If you have a positive father experience in your life, then there's probably some part of you that wishes to be like your dad. And that's a good thing. You know? Dads should be role models. That's what they should be. They should be the number one hero in this world, should be synonymous with dad. If there's anything that, that a dad should be able to be in, in a child's life, it should be a role model, a hero, you know, a picture of what it looks like. For me as a father right now, there's so many times I look at my life with regret and say, oh man, I really hope that that is not the picture of what my kids aspire to, you know. The way I just lost my temper right there, you know the way that I didn't have patience where I was not slow to anger and abounding in love the way my Father in Heaven was. You know? Most of what we get from our Father we do not get by the choice of our Father or our Mother. What our parents choose to give to us and to embed in us when they're intentional. It can be very helpful. Like a teacher or a mentor who comes around and instructs us. uh, If you were to have an internship and you were to come alongside of someone as an apprentice, all that they would show you and all that they would show us would have profound effect on our life and would build skills in us. And parents can do this. But much more than just the intentionality of what a parent invests into us, there's two other things that have huge profound effect, things that, that are not determined by that. One is when we are born, we are born with DNA. And it is what it is. And I look the way I look, and there's certain things that no one can change. It just is what it is because it was passed on to me through birth. But secondly, there's this other thing, and it's just osmosis. You know? It's like being around someone, even when they're not trying to teach us something, it teaches us something. And in our formative years, who we grow up around and what we experience, regardless of what the noise is, regardless of what's being spoken to me, we learn by what's happening around us. And we learn more from the way things are happening and what's happening than we do by just what's being spoken. The whole thing of do as I say, not as I do, you know, we wish that that could be more true than it actually is. We wish that we could develop ourselves by our pure human willpower so that if we could take the wisdom that someone gives us and say, I will embed that, even though everything in the context in which I'm experiencing that doesn't represent it. But we can't. We are affected by the way we are raised. And we don't have the ability to just separate, all right, I'm going to choose this part and and forsake this part to a degree we can do that and that's why mentors are so important that's why role models are so important that's why it's very important to be intentional as parents and do our best to do what we can but there's also another part of us where who we are is just about who we were born as and how what kind of environment we're raised in for many of us we have been exposed to god and the christian faith for one reason Because we were born in America. And if we had been born in Iraq, what would that do to our faith? Now God's sovereign. And that's where we're getting here. Okay, That's where we're getting here. But when when we think only in terms of family, and think humanly, our development is affected so much by the family and the country and all of those things that we were born into. Here's the thing is what First John tells us in spectacular fashion, is that you are born of God. That those who receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. If we will believe it and if we will receive it, we can actually believe and receive our adoption as his children. Which means the effects on our lives much deeper than what family I was born into or what country I was born into or who my physical dad was or anything like that. The effects that can be far greater than all of that is the fact that I can be born of God. You want to talk about good DNA? DNA. You want to talk about having a leg up in genetics? You want to talk about, like, you know, there's some people who, as hard as you, as hard as I would work at playing soccer, you know, I played soccer my whole life. As hard as I worked at playing soccer, I remember when I was at Moody, we would scrimmage. Northwestern and DePaul and Leola, all these schools that had, like, these D1 schools that had incredible soccer programs, they would come play on our field because we had the best field in the city. And in order to play on our field, our coach would be like, okay, you can come play on the field, but we're going to scrimmage, you know, and because, because our coach wanted us to play up and play higher talent. I remember looking at these guys and being like, if I practiced every day, my entire life, I promise you that it would be absolutely impossible for me to ever do what those guys do to who much is given much is required. And those guys are given a whole lot more than me when it comes to genetics. You know, and I remember one time hearing Charles Barkley say when I was a kid, I was at something where Charles Barkley said, you can be anything you want if you put your mind to it. And I was like, no, I can't be you. I can't be you. There's no way. There is no way I can be you. And I'm not supposed to be you. Even as a a high schooler, I knew that. There's no way I can be you. You know, but I'm not supposed to be you. And a lot of, of what we have is about what's been given to us, but this is what we're told in this passage, is what we've been given is God as a father. He is our dad. And what we're told is if we think that we can't flat out agape love from the core of our being and hold the true characteristics of God inside of us, if we don't believe that, then we don't believe the gospel. Because the gospel says that I am born of God and that His DNA is mine. And that day in Pentecost when He took His Spirit and imparted it to me, it meant that He dwells within me. His very Spirit dwells within me. My physical DNA that shapes the way my body look is not nearly as deep as His Spirit that shapes the very core of who I am. I might be, there might be scientific advances someday that allow me to just select. I want a nose like this. I want ears like this. I want a hairline like this. Click, and it rewires my whole DNA and shapes the way I look. I have no idea. That might happen someday. But there's only one who can change at the very core of who we are, can change our nature and our character, and can change our ability to be good or evil. We are by nature objects of wrath. We are by nature sinners. And there's this moment where this wonderfully seemingly righteous man shows up and meets Jesus in the middle of the night because he's afraid to be with Him. And he says, Hey Jesus, we know that You're from God because who else could do these miraculous things that you do and Jesus looks back at him and says oh you know that I'm from god you cannot see the kingdom of god until you are born again and nicodemus says what born again and he says this should not surprise you you're born once of the flesh but if you want to live in the Spirit, if you want to live the way God does, if you want to see the world the way God does, then you have to also be born of the Spirit. The wind blows wherever it wants, and you see the effects of it. You don't know, but you know it's there. And he says, those who are born of the Spirit, they see. And they experience and they know and say, there's God, there's God. I see him and they're beginning to abide in God. And what's happening is, is they are becoming more like him because his spirit is transforming the very core of who they are because he's implanted his spirit within them, which is why this happens in the new covenant where he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them and he says, this is my body for you. And he takes the cup and he has them drink it. And he says, this is my blood given to you. And what's happening there is he's saying, this is who I am being passed on into you. I am now imparting my very self, my flesh, my blood into you. As a matter of fact, John also documents the moment where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and unless you drink my blood, you have no part with me. And a whole bunch of people were like, that's crazy. I'm out of here. I want nothing to do with that. But what Jesus is saying is, you can't do this. You can't become like God. I have to to rebirth you. I have to remake you. I have to completely reshape you and alter you from the inside out, from the core of your being. And the only way that happens is through rebirth. That means that we actually have to invite God to remake us from the core to the periphery. And the gospel says that he can do that. And so when I look at my life and I say, man, God, I realize that um, I'm a pretty selfish person and I'm a very impatient person and I struggle to be gentle and I struggle to be honest and open with people and I struggle with all of that. I could work really hard at trying to look like God, but that would be like someone who's not my kid working very hard to try to look like me. When what God says is, I can just make you my kid. And I can change you from the very core. But you have to invite me to do that. You have to actually ask me to do that. And if you do, I will remake you. And I will rename you. And I will choose to adopt you. And here's the most amazing thing about God, above all of it, is that when God births us and puts himself in us, and then he renames us and says we are the children of God, then he does this other thing which is that for every one of us, the DNA of, of our father and what it is that the words that come out of our father's mouth, if we had a father who was at all invested in our, in our life, but then the, the way he lived may or may not have matched up to one degree or another. But with Father God, what happens is, is he says, this is who I am. This is who I've made you and now I've named it. And then this is what he does. The way he lives his life is completely affirming of everything that he said all the time. And I don't know about you, the hardest thing when it comes to belief and when it comes to faith is someone can tell us something and we can be like, oh, that's true. But then we just forget it. And we can't get it to be embedded in our life. And what happens in a parenting model, what happens in a family, is we learn over and over again by watching and by dwelling in that place. And this is what First John is telling us. To the extent that we abide in God's love, We begin to believe it more and more, and then we're transformed into it. So if I'm a child of God, and I want to live like a child of God, and the world tells me that I'm this or I'm that or whatever, but I want to actually live as a child of God, then what it's saying is to the extent that I draw close to God, I will always 100% experience the reality of his love because there's never a time where he's not loving. And so he backs up his words, and he backs up his naming of us, And he backs up that DNA by living it all the time. So I can hear the gospel and I can choose to receive it and say, God's going to make me new. And then it says this though, you must receive it. To those who believe him, to those who will receive it, he gives the right to be called children of God. And to the extent that we abide in that love, we become, we start to, to look like that love. And that's learning to rest in the presence of father. So my dad, He might, think about this physically again, a dad who made me, who created me, but then went away and I never saw him. There's parts of me that can still look like him. But if he comes back and he invests into my life, there's more of me that will look like him. Well, the way it happens with God is, is that we separated ourselves from God and we told Satan in the Garden of Eden, we want you to be our dad. Because we like the apple that you're giving us that this dad is saying he's not going to give us. So we want you to be our dad. He redeems us, God forgives us, and he brings us back, and he restores so that we can be made new by him again. And he said, I can make you my child again. I can rebirth you. I can change your heart and change your spirit, and I will give you a new name, and you will be called this way. And whatever the world has called you, whatever the enemy has called you, whatever your friends in elementary school have called you that affect your life, whatever your coworkers have called you that affects your life, I call you something different. And you want to believe that to the extent that you want to believe that you are something different then I would invite you and encourage you. This is what Father God is saying to us. Is that I'm not the one who ran away. It was you. You were the child who ran away. I wasn't the father who abandoned you. And I'm here and I've restored you. And if you want the benefits of receiving my presence in your life, then abide in me. And to the extent that you abide in me, you will find my DNA working itself out in you. We don't get to be like dad because we try hard to. We get to be like dad, one, because we are born of him. When we say, yes, remake me. Two, because he names us. So we have to believe what he names us, not what anyone else names us. And three, when we stay close to dad, it changes us. Because we become like him to the extent that we abide in him. So today, I encourage you on those three things. If you have never asked to be born of God, say, God, remake me. By the blood of Jesus, remake me. Secondly, whatever it is that you believe about yourself because of whoever called you what or whatever the enemy is speaking into your life, I would ask us to invite God's word to name us and no other word. And then thirdly, if we want that to be a reality working itself out in our physical lives, then we need to spend our time and our energies primarily in our lives hanging out with God. That's our big thing, hanging out with Dad. To the extent that happens, we will learn what it's like to be in Dad's family. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you. First, you created us. Then we rejected you. Then you forgave us. Then you restored us. You remade us. You, you reshaped us at our core. Then you invite us into your presence and you rename us. God, we ask that you would take this word that reveals all of that truth to us and you would take your spirit which indwells within us and that God, you would, by your great, great, extra measures of grace stir deep within us the hunger and the thirst to abide in you to believe what you have named us and to receive the rebirthing that you provide for us thank you for birthing the church thousands of years ago thank you for those of us who have received you for rebirthing us God, may that salvation, may that gospel, may that DNA work itself out. As Romans 8 says, all of creation waits with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. God, continue to reveal in us your DNA. And we'll thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.